Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the South Asian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I am Madhuri, the host of your channel. And today we are talking to Sujata Gidla about her new book, her first book, Ants Among Elephants, An Untouchable Family and the Making of Modern India. Sujata, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Madhuri, and thanks, everyone. And Sujata, I wonder if you will begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, your journey from Andhra Pradesh to this book. Uh, I was born in Andhra. In um, I grew up in a small town called Kakinada. Uh, because of my parents, uh, you know, being educated and employed, they steered us in the direction of, uh, you know, education. Um, I ended up in IIT Madras. Uh, There I saw everybody applying and going to America. So I did the same. And that's how I ended up here. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, my aspirations and my expectations uh, in the US uh, are different from uh, average Indians who come here. Uh, I wanted uh, to see a different way of life and uh, experience living in a freer, if not uh, the, of course, it's not the freest, but uh, a freer society than Indian society. And, uh, and that's how I came up here. Right. And you were trained as an engineer, and yet you write this beautiful spare prose that's so hard hitting. How did you come to take up the pen? Oh, well, you know, uh, uh, people say a lot of times like, oh, you studied science. How did you uh, become a writer? How could you write? But it's like, you know, you're, you're a doctor and how could you play golf or something? You know, I don't think uh, mutually uh, exclusive and the second thing is probably that uh, my uh, training in science as well as uh, my exposure to Marxism uh, you know uh, shaped the way I wrote uh, sparing minimum and no flourish right and you really let the reader deal with the content of your prose rather than get carried away with beautiful writing not that the two are mutually exclusive but you begin the book by talking us through how this book itself was a process of self-discovery for you too right that you went back to your family members talked to them talked to them again and again and collected these oral histories so why don't you tell us a little bit more about that process for you? First, I don't know how it is for other untouchables or for any other person, but uh, I think especially because we were at the receive and receiving end of discrimination, I always wanted to know why it was like that. 
I came to know that in villages, uh, untouchable parents uh, tell their children, this is how it is. This is who we are. Uh, they don't question uh, why they were like that. But for some reason, I was one of those people who questioned. Uh, and uh, the questioning started with this movie where, I mean, I attributed my untouchability to Christianity, it being uh, a minority religion. But then I came across these Syrian Christians who are acting just like Brahmins, you know. Then I said, oh, okay, this uh, religion is not this, not the reason why we are untouchable. So, and I wanted to know. And that's how, it, I mean, really like, the pivotal thing, people won't believe it, but coming across Syrian Christians is what prompted me to probe into my past. Uh, so I asked my mother why we were Christians, and uh, then she went on to tell the story. Uh, maybe in, uh, you know, families that are, you know, socially high up, uh, they proudly tell their children their family stories, but it wasn't like that, my family. they were Nobody told us that until my I asked my mother, but once I started talking to her, I found out like those those um, stories to be very interesting. Not only that, but they gave an insight into how these uh, how caste works and what makes one untouchable and what are the dynamics of you know caste. Uh, so it was all very interesting to me. So for people who are who have the same kind of tastes, I, I thought this would make a good book. When did you decide at that point that you were going to write all this down and turn it into a book? And how did family members react when you told them that this was actually for a book project? I think pretty much when my mother told me the first story about how uh, her clan, our clan, uh, came out of the jungles and settled in the plains, that's that's pretty huge story, you know. I didn't know it before. like. We crossed a, uh, a civilizational era, like being from hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists. That that took place in very in our very recent past is uh, very pa- fascinating to me. Um, so I really did think that that you know it's uh, something to tell other people. And uh, then I started writing those stories and one of my friends posted an excerpt on internet and uh, somebody saw it and he wanted to include it in the Oxford Anthology of Telugu Dalit Writing. So he asked us and we uh, we uh, gave it to him. And he was the one who encouraged and said, this, this makes a good book, you should write it. And he kept on... In, um, you know, encouraging me. He was a professor, Purushottam Kontam of Kaktiya University. And he also included uh, an excerpt in his English classes textbooks in Kaktiya University and two other universities in Andhra. That's exciting. How did students respond to your piece? Uh, I never asked that professor and I've, uh, he never told me anything, but I'm active on social media and people recognized my name and said, oh, madam, you wrote that uh, piece in our textbooks. It's a, a great piece and we loved it and things like that. So I, I'm sure that it was received well. So I see your book is coming out in India end of November, right? 
how are you looking forward to that are you excited a little wary nervous uh i'm excited i'm not at all nervous uh, because uh you know the publication of the book in america and its reception by indian readers uh, pretty much told me that they would like it uh there's no question about it uh maybe there are some people uh hindu nationalists people who don't want other the rest of the world to know that there is caste system who are ashamed of it and yet uh, supporters of it may not like it and i have heard of i mean there's one review or story of it uh kind of like denouncing the book uh, but other than that i haven't seen anything else except people making comments um on blogs and social media i haven't seen any opposition to the book yet but probably it would happen once the book comes out in um, india are you going to be traveling to india to speak with the press and do readings are you traveling to india soon to do readings with the press okay. uh, times of india has a book festival literature festival in bombay mumbai uh, i'm going to that and then uh, jaipur lit fest uh, next year right that's uh, very exciting stuff i also like you encountered a blog including some youtube comments on your cuny tv interview where this uh, hindu nationalist gentleman berated you for airing india's dirty linen in public and you know talking about how india can solve its own problems so you know there are always going to be those uh, kinds of reactions and uh your book is writing precisely against those voices right i want to ask you a little bit more about your choice of the category untouchable over dalit what motivated that sure yeah i prefer untouchable uh as you know uh, untouchables uh, have been called different names in different uh you know at uh, times starting from depressed classes which the british uh, called untouchables and then gandhi came along called them harijans and then um, there is scheduled caste after uh, the reservations were put in constitution and then the latest being dalit dalit is something that uh, untouchables themselves prefer but uh i like to be you know from my science background or from marxist background want to be precise and scientific and untouchable is a politically neutral word uh which uh, rep- which which tells exactly what uh you know that community are um so i prefer untouchable than dalit and how do you see yourself in relationship to the current dalit politics as it's unfolding in india i mean you have you know daily news of dalit lynchings but then you also have emergent dalit protests last year in gujarat there was a big pushback against mob violence in una district how do you uh, react to reading news uh about india and dalit politics here in the us 
so there are two parts to to Dalit news. One is the uh, news of atrocities. The second, the second is the pushback. Uh, I mean, news of atrocities is makes me outraged uh, because uh, it's intensifying more and more, uh, wider and wider, and the violence is more brutal than ever before, uh, with no sign of uh, abating. Um, and, uh, you know, something has got to give. Uh, it can't go on. And uh, as for the protests, I don't know the people. I mean, there is a, like a mass outpouring in Ona and other places. That is a very welcome sign. But at the same time, I'm not sure. I'm not doubting. I'm just saying that I don't know who the leaders are and where uh, they're leading the whole outrage and mass outpouring uh where they're leading it to. Uh, I don't know who, uh, I mean, who, who Maywani is, uh, where he came from. And uh, I'm always skeptical when uh, big leaders come out like suddenly. Uh, in, uh, for example, I'm skeptical about uh, Beam Army. Uh, I mean, the idea is good, but what if it's some vested interests, um, you know, uh, acting from behind these people. That's how I feel. Uh, as for uh, Ambedkarites and other people uh, in America, um, you know, I'm skeptical of them too, in the sense that who are funding them, what are their real motives? But I'm not saying outright that they're bad because I don't really know. But I want to take it with a pinch of salt uh, when it comes to people, you know, coming out and leading things. Uh, my theory, my my principle is follow the money. Speaking of leaders, you know, the second half of the book, uh, you know, runs on parallel tracks almost, right? You have your mother's story and you have your uncle SM's story. And, you know, on one, one hand, SM is a revolutionary. He's a poet. He's a people's leader. And he's out there in the forest leading the struggle. But then there's also your mother who's leading an everyday struggle, right? That uh, she has to fight on two fronts as a Dalit, but also as a woman raising three children. So both those struggles in some ways are as important, Right. And I appreciated how you juxtaposed uh, your mother and your uncle in, you know, this contrasting fashion. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how you see those two aspects coming together and yet somehow seen as separate by the outside world? Um, I'm not really sure that I understand myself uh that there is some kind of organic link between them. Uh, I just wrote down how it happened. But I would say that, you know, both of them came from a very marginalized uh, background and both of them aspired to do things better than their parents did. Um, and uh, him being a man, uh, he was able to do what he wanted to do, despite, uh, you know, 
he went through all these struggles, different parties, different ideologies and all that stuff. But he went on to do what he wanted to do. Whereas my mother, being a woman, still disadvantaged. Uh, I mean, women, Dalit women are doubly expressed, uh, I mean, uh, doubly oppressed in the sense that they're oppressed both by caste and by gender. That's what my mother's struggle was. And uh, so her struggle then remained uh, you know, how to survive rather than something uh, more uh, universal, uh, less individual. Uh, That's how I see it. Because leftist struggles all over the world have repeatedly stumbled against this question, right? That of marginalized identities within it and how to resolve the push and the pull between gender and class, between caste and class. So, you know, in the afterward, when you write about how your uncle was expelled from the party because he went public with caste discrimination within the party itself, how did you feel? You were you were 16 at the time, right? Were you disillusioned, disenchanted? Uh, I think that, you know, until the point of my arrest, uh, I was very, very passionate about Naxalite politics. Uh, my idea was that after I graduate, I was going to go underground and be a guerrilla. Uh, once the arrest happened... Uh, it, it a lot of disorientation happened because um, you know uh, it's uh, evident that Naxalite cadre will get arrested, tortured, or shot, or imprisoned, and there seemed to be no uh, a set program or a strategy on the part of the party uh, how to deal with that thing. You know, uh, maybe for example, they have. Um, you know, a great a group of uh, civil rights la- lawyers dedicated to this, or some kind of strategy to bail people out. Uh, you know, none of that. There was nothing like that. You know, it was like we were left to hang dry. You know, uh, that came as a surprise to me because you know they have these plans that they have. You know, for leaders to have dens and secret secret dens and couriers and. Um, you know, uh, what do you call uh, disguises? Uh, why didn't they have such uh, uh, strategies or plans or some tricks to deal for, you know, for us to deal with? Uh, actually, I'm I'm one of the like, lucky ones because I escaped, but there are people who were shot dead, uh, the uh, menial workers, the uh, regional engineering college mess workers, uh, who were arrested at the same time, they have never come back. I think that they were shot dead. You can't just people leave like that. I mean, leave people like that, you know, uh, to fend for themselves. That is wrong on the party to do that. And second thing is immediately after that, that thing came out that my uncle was expect, uh, expelled. So it was kind of disorienting, but at the same time, I was not completely disillusioned. Um, and then I went to IIT in the IIT uh, Madras, and there was no atmosphere there of leftist politics. So that was somewhat, you know, loosened me from uh, my passion. And when I came to America, then I realized uh, reading 
stuff that, uh, you know, I don't really, I, I wanted to reject guerrilla path for revolution. I still think a revolution is needed. I still think that a change is um, urgent and necessary, but I don't think that guerrilla guerrilla warfare is the is the way to go so what is the way to go in your opinion mass mobilizations of course yeah i mean guerrilla uh, strategy it's it sounds very militant and very heroic and romantic but uh when it comes down to it it's a uh, uh petty bourgeois in its ideology in the sense that okay a group of us who are very intelligent, very courageous, uh, and willing to sacrifice will liberate the whole, you know, country. That's a very elitistic uh, view of things, even though uh, it looks very, you know, romantic and great and adventurous. And I think that, you know, uh, the other problem with guerrilla warfare is that, you know, how many, you can have all kinds of weapons and stuff, but can anyone ever match uh, the state's capacity uh, it's, uh, you know, for uh, inflicting violence. Uh, they have nuclear bombs, for example. Uh, can guerrillas, um, you know, match that? They cannot. So what they need to look at is what do you have in your hand that that can make them come down to their knees? And it's the working class. Working class don't doesn't need to take up weapons, you know. Uh, they can say that we don't want to work today. We don't work, want to work for a month if you don't do this. And that's how, that is where the power lies. It's what what is called the social power. And that social power lies in the hands of the working class, not in the hands of guerrillas. And as an example, I'll give you this, that in 2005, MTA workers went on strike and it was uh, Christmas season, uh, rush, and two days, just two days. Two days, they stopped service and Wall Street came to a screeching halt. That's the kind of power they had. They didn't have to use weapons. Um, they have the power of withholding their work. That is where to look for uh, bringing about change. Wow, that's very inspiring. Thank you for uh, sharing your vision. So now that you're in the US, are you still involved or engaged in leftist politics or Dalit politics back in Andhra? No, not formally engaged. I'm, I don't belong to a party. Uh, I don't uh, follow one particular uh, Dalit uh, strand of Dalit movement. Um, I do just generally follow it, uh, hoping that in future there is something that will come out of it that's effective and the right direction to go. Until then, yeah, just onlooker and following the news. Well, I think writing this book is definitely an act of engagement. So, you know, I wouldn't describe you as uh, sitting on the fence at all, in fact. But so I don't think of myself as sitting on the fence, not just because I wrote a book, but... uh, I'm looking at things and see what will happen and what to do in future, you know. Right. Waiting and learning and observing. Exactly. I want to ask uh, you about writing on this volatile, difficult, painful topic. Um, 
specific to India, but in the US, right? And in several interviews, you draw a comparison between the American experience of racism with caste discrimination back in India. And it's a powerful analogy, right? And activists too have gone back and forth on drawing on the experience of race and the experience of caste to come up with a solidarity platform. And, you know, historically it's been less successful at one point and more at others. How have people responded to you making this analogy? Uh, it's kind of like, you know, uh, Fox 5 News, they were doing an interview with me. Uh, they had me sitting on uh, a stoop of a brownstone uh, in Fort Greene. And uh, the guy was talking to me and people were passing by. And it's a kind of a black neighborhood. And people started gathering and they were spellbound, you know, when I was talking about race and uh, uh, caste. Uh, they were going about their business and they just stopped and they were listening to it. And then they thanked me afterwards to, you know, say that uh, they learned something. And uh, uh, in India, the conscious Dalits, uh, Dalits who are able to watch on TV what goes on in America, they do definitely identify with the black people in America. And black people will too, except that, they don't get news of Indian caste system as much as Indians get news of ras- racism in America. And I think that, uh, in, I mean, I'm not a social scientist or an anthropologist uh, to make, you know, like um, academically correct uh, comparisons between race and caste. But from all superficial on the surface, there are so many similarities that it's hard to miss. The first and foremost is, uh, that the discrimination is based on uh, your birth, where who to whom you were born. You know, in case of Americans, it is you're born from somebody who came from Africa. That is what determines their status in the society. And the second thing is segregation. You know, I mean, even seg- even the even though Jim Crow has been dismantled, uh, there is no question that there is rampant discrimination in housing for Black people. My my coworkers tell me that uh, uh, it's almost impossible to get housing um, in in places where uh, there are no Black people. You know. So those two things are very, very similar. And then there are all of, all those other things that uh, marrying uh, a an upper caste, uh, uh, you know, marrying an upper caste uh, girl is forbidden. So is, uh, you know, Amit Hill in 1940s, was it, that he was killed uh, because he was supposed to have visual that a, a white woman. That's very similar, isn't it? I'm surprised that, you know, it's... That point is not made more often and more um, evocatively. And it's great that in your public uh, speaking, you're making that connection over and over again. And especially, you know, in the last year, there's been so much violence against Africans in India that it's almost as if you're bringing it full circle, right? You're pointing out how deeply racist uh, upper caste urban Indians can be. And I thought, 
you know how in the US liberals will say oh but we live in a post racist world we don't see any racism just as in india you'll have urban upper caste uh, indians talking about living in a post casteist world right so that's again yet another uh, similarity so how have you felt when you know the incidents of students dalit students committing suicide in india were playing out because while reading your book and you know when your mother gets a second class in banaras after having studied so hard and done so well and all her professors acknowledging her hard work and brilliance and yet there she was and that was what 30 40 years ago and yet so little has changed how do you feel when you encounter these incidents when it happened to my mother my mother was uh, you know okay that happened to me it was awful it's very uh, uh you know strange and things like that and then it happened to my sister and then she didn't know how to express it like oh this is happening to me help me or something uh she went crazy because we, she was being repeatedly failed in anatomy uh so it was all like you know uh individual experiences uh that uh, they didn't think that was uh, a widespread thing uh but it, it comes out after the 80s that this thing is a systemic thing you know uh it's not written in the books but uh, that is what happens to dalit students everywhere uh it's not something that happens to one person like my mother or second person to like like my sister but it's a, a thing and the thing is that there is a reason that they they discriminate uh, dalits in universities it's i mean even the perpetrators may not may not know why they are discriminating why they are harassing but the, the the real material basis for it is that dalits must be confined to doing agricultural labors if they don't do agriculture labor who will do it then we must confine these people force these people to confine themselves to earning livelihood from working on uh, the fields of the landlords and this is one way of discouraging dalit students from pursuing anything other than agricultural labor that is the reason why they harass uh, dalit students to hang themselves or quit studies and go back somewhere right so it's an institutional violence that's structured in such a way that it keeps out dalits from avenues of social mobility right yeah it's a, what they do in rural india is to force they force untouchables to stay in their place by violence and what they do the same thing in universities is by instead of killing them they drive them to kill themselves the violence is the same kind of violence the purpose of the violence in both places is the same purpose to keep them where they belong in agricultural fields as laborers you state that really powerfully i appreciate your phrasing of that um that dynamic so your family have they all read the book um i'm sure my mother read it and my uncle died my both my uncles died my father uh, died a long time ago and my siblings i think that they were very um 
uh, anxious about the book, what I have written, whether, uh, you know, I've been telling them that I wrote this book, I'm writing this book, and they didn't know whether that book will be good book or not good book, whether people will receive it, uh, you know, uh, well or not. So I think that they refrained from looking at it, uh, refrained from reading it. But once you know, the New York Times article came. It was a big validation for them. I think my sister reads it in, um, you know, uh, in parts like this part first, that part first. I don't know what my bro- brother does, but I'm sure he's reading it too. And what have they said to you about it? Uh, my my sister is very into it. My, my sister is more passionate than uh, any one of us about you know, discrimination and the treatment of Dalits because she experienced it more than any of us. Uh, uh, she, uh, so uh, she's very much involved. She was very happy that uh, I was able to say these things to outside world. And she keeps saying, you know, in Amer- in India, we don't have any, um, any people on, on our side. And Westerners are on our side for some reason, and we must keep them. You know, she says that at any cost. Um, that's her reaction, and she's very happy about it. My brother doesn't talk much, but my mother, as you might have guessed, she's very, very proud and very engaged with the book. And she made a lot of enemies because of that. Uh, she had her colleagues, uh, 50, 60 of them, for the last 40 years. All of them left her en masse upon publication of this book because most of them are Brahmins and they're very violently uh, uh, displeased with the publication of the book. They called her and said things. How dare your daughter write this thing? Uh, how dare you talk about talk about us like this have we not treated you like uh, one of us for all these years you know that kind of stuff so she really really lost a lot uh, in terms of her friends friend circles but she doesn't seem to care that much (laughs) that's very brave of her and by extension you and i just also want to note uh, my appreciation for how you don't make um you don't give the western reader you don't let them off easy right with details you don't use italics you don't assume that they won't understand or that you know you should use footnotes or you don't mollycoddle or babysit a non-indian reader right you just tell it like it is and I really appreciate that. Was that a conscious decision on your part to not uh, care if they got all the details or not? You were just going to say it anyway? Uh, I wanted to say it the way I wanted because, you know, uh, even though I lived here a long time, uh, when I think uh, the language idiom I use is Telugu idiom. Uh, and that's what I did. And uh, so I stuck with it until editors came along and said that change this or explain this. And I said, uh, it, it won't work if I, if I uh, explain this. So they had to listen to me. And I think that it worked out well. Nobody is complaining. 
Right. And I've read some reviews which said that, you know, for somebody unfamiliar with India's complexity might find it challenging, but you get the big picture. And I think that's the real victory, right? That you keep the details and yet they get the big picture. So so that's that's really what's amazing. Is there a new project in the pipeline? Are you continuing to write something else or what's on the horizon? I thought of this uh, writing uh, project as uh, three books. Uh, one is history from the beginning of our family as as far back as we can remember up to uh, independence. Uh, I was I was going to make it uh, the first book and then from independence to 1970s when my mother's uh, thing resolved in one way or the other and my uncle going underground and me uh, just uh, understanding the world, uh, that should be the second book. And then I thought the third book would be my my story from when I was seven years old until I came here. That was the original uh, plan. So I submitted the first book, you know, from uh, the nomadic tribes in jungle to independence. But when I submitted it, uh, the editors felt that it felt like a cliffhanger, the end of it. And it felt like it was unsatisfying end. So they wanted me to add more story. When I did add, it became a huge, huge book of 600 pages. So what I did was I condensed the whole first book into one chapter, which I called Prologue. Um, so that book is still there because it's not just that much which, uh, which, which is there currently in the book. Uh, there's a lot more to it, a lot more stories there and a lot more, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, it's very lyrical, the past. So that book is still there and I'm going to ask them to publish that book. So then that would be the second book. And uh, the next project will be my own story. And I don't know how successful it will be because my story is uh, definitely not as colorful as uh, my uncle's story. Well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? Well, Sujata, thank you so much for joining us. All the best for your future ventures. I'm already excited to read whatever else you have lined up. And I know I enjoyed this one and I hope that our listeners pick up a copy as soon as they hear you speak about it here. So... Thanks, Madhuri, and thanks, everyone. All right, take care. So that was Sujata Gidla talking about her Ants Among Elephants, An Untouchable Family and the Making of Modern India. It came out this year from Farrar Strauss and Giroux. Thank you.